Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. My name is Sam, I work here, and it is my great delight, very briefly, to introduce you to this afternoon's lecture, the climax of our 2014-15 series. As I'm sure you'll agree, if not now, then by the end of this 45-minute talk with some questions, 50-minute talk with some questions, by my colleague and friend, uh, Mr. Michael Crumplin. Now, Mick was a consultant surgeon uh, up in uh, uh, the wilds of North Wales, um, and alongside his clinical practice, developed unparalleled expertise in the history of surgery, and in particular, the history of military surgery, and in particular, the history of military surgery during the Napoleonic and the Peninsula Wars. And his expertise is of such that he's not only the foremost authority on battlefield surgery in Waterloo, he's among the finest of historians of Waterloo full stop. And in this year, there's been quite a lot of activity going on. So we are delighted to welcome him here in this, the bicentenary week. We have our lectures on a Tuesday, not a Thursday, when the actual bicentenary is, but you'd have been busy hobnobbing with royalty on, on Thursday anyway, I think. Um, Mick is, uh, due to his expertise in Waterloo, he's a trustee of the Waterloo Association. His education leads to the whole of the Waterloo 200 celebrations. And not only that, not only that, ladies and gentlemen, he is honorary curator at the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons. And as such, an integral part of our team here. And today, as you know, he'll be talking to us about the bloody fields of Waterloo. Mick, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you can all hear. Sam, thank you for that warm welcome and for your invitation uh, with the help of, great help of Hayley Kruger to get me to come and talk on this uh, imminently important subject. Around six months ago, the English College held a superb conference on the medicine of war between Hunter and Helmand and we anticipated so many military commemorations, Azincourt, Waterloo, World War I, Gallipoli, VE Day, and so forth. But in two days, we'll recall the actual Battle of Waterloo, and we should remember that this battle effectively ended a long and extremely crippling war in Europe, which left more than, well, around four million Europeans dead, which is a huge proportion of the population. Such victories, of course, are brought at a price, and um, as we gave it this wonderful but rather sanitised image of the Duke and his staff, it hangs in the Rijksmuseum, painted by Jean Pienemann, we notice a, a rather pale figure being helped off his horse, and this is, of course, the Prince of Orange, the second in command of necessity under the Duke of Wellington, wounded. And really, uh, all too often, the less appealing aspects of warfare are forgotten by historians. They're marginalized, passed over as being too gruesome or with ignorance. There are many anecdotes, of course. And what I'd like to do today is tell you about the battle and the medical aspects to the campaign. But I think most importantly, we should dedicate this talk to the efforts that this college made to support this war this forgotten war in many ways, and to the highly impressive strides made by the army medics over the last 200 years. The human cost to war is uh, tragic, and families lost so many men. We only had a population of 9 million at the beginning of this war. 
And here are two cousins, Edwin and Watkin Griffiths. They come from where near I live. They both were um, majors in light dragoon regiments, and they were both fatally injured uh, poignantly by cannon shot to the chest. But that family lost two fine young men. And of course, it's not only the fatalities we have to remember, because having lost 453 men in Afghanistan, in Telic and Herrick operations, we had 1,900 injured, men and women injured. And the impressive results at Camp Bastion recently, at 93% survival if they came in alive, which is phenomenal, reflects 200 years of research, hard work, and tough lessons learned. So the war that ended at Waterloo was a long one, 23 years long. You can see the military and naval dispositions of the campaigns and the, uh, when you think that you've got to supply these forces by wind-driven wooden ships, it's some achievement. And it was called the Great War, not without good reason. We lost 2.5% of, of our population, which is greater loss proportionally than in World War I. And the debt of the war was 1,600 million pounds, which is a heck of a lot of money. And of course, we were a burgeoning economic nation, but we were on our knees at the end of this war. And of course, gaining naval power, gaining supremacy at sea was all important for all these campaigns. And uh, when Nelson went to meet his nemesis in October 1805, just a short while before that, he met uh, Major General Sir Arthur Wellesley in the colonial office and the baton of war was metaphorically handed over to the small British army. Three years later, the Peninsular War began in 1808. Our adversary had certainly established himself as a fantastic strategist, um, masterminding all sorts of shenanigans, as you know, and we see him as a young uh, general in command of the Army of Italy, Republican general, and his format has changed somewhat. His physique has altered by 1814. The chap's been at war for 18 years, and it's worn him right down. There are rumors of him being a frolic dwarf. Of how he certainly had bladder stones and cystitis, and yes, he did have hemorrhoids the night before Waterloo. They were treated by Baron Larre with leeches, and that comes out of Prince Jerome's diary. But medically, he was fit enough during the battle, contrary to all rumours, but absolutely exhausted, of course. His army, I mean, don't forget that by Waterloo, the French nation had lost almost a million men. So the army was decimated as far as experienced soldiers were concerned, but there were enough, and there were plenty who'd been prisoners released in 1814 who came back to fight. So the, the NCOs and the private soldiers in the French army were very keen to fight again. But the officers were not, because if Napoleon lost, their future was very much in, in the balance. And of course, uh, there were problems with leadership at this battle. What's interesting is, if you look at the war in three chunks, and the bottom one is missing, the first one, you've got the low countries and the savage weather conditions and poor organization of the medical forces. And in the West Indies, you've got yellow fever and malaria. Those two campaigns, really going on from 1793 to 1799, cost us over half the casualties of the whole war through unpreparedness and adverse organization and weather conditions. And the middle chunk of the war was fascinating medically, but not, we, we didn't learn as many lessons as we could have done from the first chunk of the war. And of course, the next part of the war is the Peninsular War, which goes on till 1814. This is Iberian campaign, often 
uh, thought to be in, unimportant in the war because Britain never fielded a conscript army, it never fielded a large army, but it did grow in the peninsula. It grew in stature, it grew in numbers, it grew in logistics, and the medical profession under the direction of uh, James McGregor from Aberdeen became impeccable. So while we were in the ascendancy during the last part of this great war, the French were running out of money, they were running out of men, they were becoming bureaucratically overwhelmed, and the French service de santé was definitely in decline. Because also, of course, we have the Russian snows, the campaigns of 1812, which decimated the French army, and the Battle of Leipzig. And then the last action in France was fought uh, in, in, the, in the spring of 1814, and Bonaparte was sent away to Elba, not far away enough, unfortunately, and many wanted him back. So he came back. He came back because there were dispossessed people, and there was a su sufficient chunk of the nation who would like to have another go. <clears throat> it was ill-conceived. It was a total hopeless dream, really, but the 100 days began when he landed on the south of France, between Fréjus and Antibes on the 1st of March, 1815. Uh, sorry about these sort of technical things. This is the border between France down here and the Low Countries, the Kingdom of the Netherlands, and what would be Belgium up here. Our lines of supply were from Britain across the Channel. The Prussians here in black, four army corps, it's about 15 to 20,000 in each corps, coming from Namur and Maastricht from the east. So these two forces were to coalesce under the Duke of Wellington and Marshal Blucher, and they were going to coalesce and invade France. But we didn't get that far because the French had outwitted us. Napoleon had moved with lightning speed with an army du Nord of about uh, 125,000 men and the Imperial Guard. And they were going to cross the River Sambre and at Charleroi here on the border, uh, push back the Prussians uh, decimate them and then turn to the Allies and then occupy Brussels for peace. And that really was the essence of the campaign. The border was shut, rumours were running uh, rife around the place and the British Army was assembling very quickly because we'd only just finished the War of 1812, there were units in Ireland. Uh, Bonaparte had completely outwitted us from the time point of view. His leaders were deficient. We didn't have Berthier, Land, Davout, all the great French marshals who'd pushed the army through Europe so effectively. We did have the brave Marshal Michel Ney, a turncoat who came back to Bonaparte, and Emmanuel de Grouchy, the most recently appointed marshal, a cavalryman, so he was going to have to behave himself, obviously, being the most recently appointed man. These two men, uh, this man was hot-headed on the battlefield and not to be entirely relied on, especially when things were going in a difficult way. Uh, and uh, de Grouchy was going to be rigidly obeying orders and not being flexible. So there were problems at high command. Marshal Sult was the um, uh, sort of quartermaster of the army. So what about the medics? Well, we have Francois Percy, a very famous uh, French surgeon who did many good things in the Revolutionary War, along with his younger compatriot, Baron Dominique Larré. Many of you will have heard of him. But Percy had cardiac failure and wasn't actually present at the battle. And, of course, to his chagrin, uh, um, uh, Larré only got the Imperial Guard and the Imperial Headquarters, but he, he sulkily came back and joined the army. 
and his reputation had already been established. He got taken prisoner at Waterloo by the Prussians, was almost shot being mistaken for the emperor, until a surgeon putting on the bandage on his eyes recognised him, sent him to Blucher, whose son, Blaret's life, it saved Blucher's son's life. So he gave him 10 Frederick d'Or gold coins and sent him off to Louvain. So Blaret was very much in evidence, operating in the front line in, in telescope vision of the British Army, this great surgeon, perhaps the most famous surgeon of the Napoleonic Wars. On our side, where we have Arthur Wellesley, the minor aristocrat, uh, austere, uh, some humour about him, very much respected, and I think through his learning and logistics and his intelligence gathering was probably on the day and uh, arguably the greater general, and so proved himself. There's Blucher, age 72, uh, schizoid tendencies. He thought he was fathered by a pink elephant, and he drank and embricated himself with schnapps and rhubarb, and uh, was injured at, water, at Ligny, actually, but managed to uh, come to our aid. Marquis of Anglesey-to-be, Lord Uxbridge, lost a leg at Waterloo, commanded the cavalry. Prince of Orange and uh, Lord Rowland Hill were the two inferior commanders to Wellington. The Prince of Orange was wounded in the left shoulder. So... The Army Medical Department. We've mentioned James McGregor. He was um, actually giving a lecture in this area on the day of Waterloo to the London Medical Chirurgical Society. And he'd been appointed Director General just five days before the battle. There were 52 hospital staff. A lot of them were residents in the Low Country at that time anyway, because don't forget that Brussels was a sort of social centre of the Army of Occupation. And there were many late arrivals, which really speaks of the inadequate provision for hospital care by the British. 57 regimental medical officers, who were basically um, GPs in the army who could operate, and their assistants. A lot of the regiments were deficient in medical staff. And the ordnance, the gunners, had their own medical staff, which was extremely efficient and didn't get merged with the army medical department until just after the Crimean War. This is Grant, the principal medical officer, brother of Cahoon Grant, the great spy master for, of Wellington in the peninsula, and this is James McGregor again, his brother-in-law. Both extremely good organisers, but we, we read little of them at Waterloo because they were really too distant from uh, the action. I'm sorry about this very bucolic figure over here, but it shows you how men were dressed to go up into line. They needed sponges, they needed water, they needed minor uh, instruments and lots of bandages because there's very little you can do in the front line. And you sent in, the regiment sent of three surgeons, it sent it most, jun most senior of the two juniors in. So the main surgeon and the more junior assistant surgeon went back to a field hospital, a regimental lazarette or whatever. And this is how a staff surgeon or regimental surgeon would have looked when he was operating. You used a sponge primarily to clean your instruments, your hands, and the patient's wounds. Of course, there was no knowledge yet of antisepsis or indeed of pain relief. 15th of June was a great social occasion by chance in Brussels. It was the fourth Duke of Richmond's wife's ball in a converted coach house in the Rue de la Blanchisserie. And I think there were probably two medics at the ball. One would have been Grant and the other, John Hume, who was uh, Wellington's personal physician. It was here at midnight that Wellington learned that Bonaparte had crossed the Sambre in force. He'd been completely hoodwinked and left-footed, and he, troops ran from the east and the north down to Catra Bras, which was a place where they would hold 
Napoleon. The strategy is important because after crossing uh, the Sambre at Charleroi, Grouchy took the right side of the army with three army corps and a Bonaparte, and they engaged on the 16th, this day, 200 years ago, they engaged the Prussians at Ligny, who were badly positioned, and no quarter was given. It was a very unpleasant battle. 19,000 Prussians became casualties and 11,000 French. But uh, the Prussians did not retire east. They retired with agreement with Wellington north to Wavre so that they could link up with Wellington later in the campaign. Grouchy was detached with 30,000 men. Big mistake, because Grouchy did not use his initiative and failed to prevent the Prussians joining Wellington on the 18th. Meanwhile, at Catrabra, we had the British uh, Allied forces engaging uh, Marshal Ney's half of the uh, force, which had divided in two, and uh, through troop delays and, and Ney's inertia, nothing much happened. Our troops built up, and then we made a, a withdrawal to here. This is just south of the village of Mont-Saint-Jean, which is south of the town of Waterloo. And this two-and-a-half to three-mile front stretched across the Brussels-Charrois road. And the French would advance and land a kilometre opposite them here. And eight miles away was potential help from the battered Prussian army. This is the Duke doffing his hat to his rear guard as he retreats northwards up that road to establish himself in position across a ridge that he'd seen previously. You can see that the thunderclouds are brewing. It was the worst night on the 17th of June, the worst night, a storm, for 10 years. And it was absolutely dreadful because there were no fires could be lit, nobody could keep warm or dry except the luck, some lucky officers. And you can imagine how difficult it was for Bonaparte's men coming up within the uh, churned-up non-metal road here. Next day, however, after very little sleep, poor food, no fires, no warmth, the armies stretched and uh, dried themselves out. So you have a kilometre of uh, valley, shallow valley, lying between forces of 70-plus thousand men facing each other, which occupy a battle area of two and a half square miles. And I, no doubt there were a lot of very nervous and excited young men waiting for what was going to happen. Troops came up. They wouldn't have looked as clean as this, of course. This is a modern reenactment. They would have been absolutely filthy and muddy and so forth. Uh, you can see that they're still wearing the, sh the uh, canvas shako covers uh, up into line. The forces facing each other, because of detachments and injuries, because Catrobrad cost the British army about 4,000 casualties, and the French army 11,000 at Ligny, you can see they were very similar in size. But remember that only 26,000 of this force were British. It's an Allied victory. This is a European effort, and therefore it's a European commemoration. Of the Prussians, only 48,000 of those 100,000 available joined the battle, and they joined it late. But they were fundamental to the victory, and without it, I don't think we could have won. But Wellington planned it that way, and he won the battle, and that's all there is to it. There's a lot of controversy going on still. Here is the French line across here. This is where the great gun battery was. Uh, this is the east over here. Up here is uh, Brussels. This is the north-south road. There's a farm of Papalot, La Haye-Sante, and behind me, the big fortress of Hougoumont. And these three outposts were very heavily defended. This is Wellington's Ridge. This was his position. And just 400 yards down the road, behind these houses north, 
is the big farm hospital of Mont-Saint-Jean, which eventually took 7,000 casualties and is now being opened up as a museum in Belgium, and we're putting medical stuff into it. It's the first battlefield to get a medical museum, which is delightful. I've got a very rich man helping me, so that's great. So here's Wellington's line, here's the French, this is the Kilometre, look at the Shallow Valley. The other thing is we're looking from the Butte du Lyon East, which was built um, earlier on a bit. You can see there's no cover. It's ideal tank, infantry, artillery, country. Maneuvering was simple, but very little cover for casualties. So a lot were looked after in the farms, in the big hospital farm behind the lines. And the other thing that stopped you getting a clear view, because Wellington said a battle was like a dance, you could only see your own partner, really, uh, was the smoke, which was very unpleasant to breathe and inhale during the battle and added to the thirst that wounded men felt um, and general thirst of the hot day. So we're going to come back to this diagram a bit. This is Hougoumont, this is La Haye-Sainte, and Papalot would be here. So you've got the British and Allied lines here, the hospital here, 400 yards down the road, the north-south road, the French Grand Battery, one infantry corps, another, another here, and the Imperial Guard. And here, the important village of Plancenoit to, to Napoleon's right, which would become attacked so that eventually Napoleon would be fighting on two fronts. And this is where later one Prussian corps and earlier another would come from the east to help. So that's the layout of the battle. This is the attack on Hougoumont, which is a Brabant farm with seven-foot walls, which I've tried to climb without a pack on my back, and it's almost impossible. And the French became sitting ducks, unfortunately. It was very bravely defended by uh, light, light companies of the guards and also uh, a lot of German soldiers. So Hougoumont is now rebuilt. It's got new doors. It's looking wonderful, and it's there for you to see. There are even two landmark trust flats in it. And that's George Osborne's million euros. Thank him very much. This is the killing ground between the brick wall and a chestnut forest, which is here, which was about, um, uh, about 12 acres in size. And the French came under heavy persecution in that killing ground. And many of them had to look after their own wounds because their ambulances or systems of forward surgical support were not with them. They were about a mile away. The French ambulance system, which we'll refer to later, was... was uh, really stretched in this battle. Here we have the north gates of Hougoumont being broken into by the French. The doors were shut, and thank goodness the farm did not fall. Colonel, Colonel MacDonald and Sergeant Graham closed the gates with also Lieutenant Wyndham. And Wyndham's family has just made oak gates to go back on the farm, new oak gates, so that's rather fine. But the chateau at 2.30 in the afternoon caught fire. It was uh, fired by an incendiary carcass, and they had to get all the wounded out of the chateau, which is quite small, and into the outlying barns. Now you can see, looking westwards, with north to our right and south to our left, the chateau of um, Hougoumont, which is about to be uh, fired from the great barn. And these are Nassau troops, Dutch-German troops here, when there's a, a, an orderly looking after a wounded redcoat here. And that's that. we're standing now in the formal gardens looking west, and behind me is a great big orchard which actually changed hands several times. And Hougoumont gradually petered out by about five o'clock. They failed to take it, which was probably quite important. The Allied casualties were about 850, but the French nearly... 5,000 men died trying to take that. And they wasted their men. They kept pouring men in and they kept dying. 
And the whole point of Hougoumont from Napoleon's point of view was to suck the Allies into Hougoumont, which they failed to do. There were never more than 1,500 men holding that farm. We don't know about the medical staff at Hougoumont or, in fact, at any of the farm outposts. But with this number of casualties here, I can't believe there wouldn't have been surgical support. We've tried to research this very hard. This is William Britton, who make lovely military models, and it shows you Colonel Wimper of the coal streams operating in Hougoumont. Well, we have no proof of that, but we think it was a coal stream guard surgeon who was there. This is a young man, Ensign Bamford Hesketh, who fought in Hougoumont with the Light Guards Company, and he didn't die till 1828, and he was terribly wounded at the battle. Uh, the wounds that were caused, which he never recovered from, and at that time, to the day of his death, his sufferings were severe and heart-rending to his family. And I had to find out what happened to this fellow. And he had most of his jaw shot away, which explains a lot, really. But he survived all that time and took promotion. But it's just one of the casualties at Hougoumont. This is Brigade Major Noel Harris under Sir Hussey Vivian. He was shot closely in the arm and at a distance in his thorax and chest and he was operated on in Hougoumont the following day. What's interesting is we have his coat. We can see that the sleeve is split down in order for the above elbow amputation to have taken place. But we can also see that the wound, the bullet entry, goes right through with a circle of cloth missing. But this wound here, this uh, damage to the coat, is by the spent ball which went into his thorax. The ball has lost energy. It's only turned a flap of cloth. It hasn't moved a disc of cloth right through the patient. And, of course, these bits of cloth carry bacteria. But he survived without much trouble, which was a, a good story. This is a third degree or full thickness burn, and it, there are going to be some nasty pictures, I'm afraid, but if you want to know about medicine in battle, it's not going to be always nice, I'm afraid. These third-degree burns were treated with lead acetate and honey and non-adherent dressings, laudanum for pain, but as today, the big killers in burns are fluid imbalance and infection. So the uh, sucking in of uh, our troops in Hougoumont didn't work, and that goes on all day. At about half past one, the battle having commenced two hours earlier, um, a preceded by a three-quarters of an hour artillery barrage, 17,000 infantry, fresh infantry, come to attack Picton's division here, Picton's 5th Division. And this was quite a risky time in the battle. The casualties from the cannonading were not as many as could have happened because there was overshoot, the ground was wet, remember, and a lot of the round shot and common shell just went into the ground. It didn't bounce. But we think about uh, 500 casualties. The wounds, this is Sergeant Voltz of the King's German Legion. You, you have a limb torn off, you can survive that, but not for a central or head strike, you won't survive. But this man survived not only this avulsion injury, but a three-week attack of tetanus, which is really quite amazing. He was one of two survivors of tetanus from the battle. These are, of course, Sir Charles Bell's paintings, which haunt us and are the only uh, sort of illustrative um, material we have of wounds during this long war. This is Albrecht Heffer, who was a Brunswick hussar, and a shot has passed obliquely across his chest, causing soft tissue loss and some broken ribs. He got breathless for a few days, which is perhaps unsurprising, and he survived the injury. But then the infantry attack followed the cannonading, and here we are, we've got 17,000 men on echelon coming up in large, wide columns, 
and skirmishing was abundant. And as these uh, lines, uh, this uh, infantry corps, came over the crest of Wellington's Ridge, they were pushing Picton's already damaged division well back. They actually went over the ridge, and things were looking rather bleak. Thomas Picton, a Welshman from Carmarthen, a brave but rather foul-mouthed and coarse general, according to Wellington, ordered his men forward, no doubt with a few expletives, and was killed by a right, uh, by a right temple shot by a French uh, voltigeur. When they undressed his body, they found another big wound on his abdomen, which had broken two ribs, um, which he'd failed to tell anyone about so that he could lead his uh, infantry division at Waterloo. This is the memorial you can see on the battlefield. In the distance, you can see the gunnery ridge from where the French attack came, the valley, and this is the hedge which was broken through by the French. Now, to repost this, there had to be something impressive, and the French were not expecting cavalry because they couldn't see them. And this will happen in a second. But before that, this is the ball that killed Picton and his compass. His military clothing hadn't come up, so he was wearing a top hat. And incidentally, this is a, a nice bit of surgical instrumentation, the saw that removed Uxbridge's leg later in the day. Here is a, a French picture of a British soldier rifling Picton's pocket as soon as he hits the ground which is believable, but the real story is that it was a French soldier. But it's rather nice to see that uh, the enemy keeps trying to get back at us. Anyway, the riposte to this assault was 2,500 heavy cavalry, the only heavy cavalry we had, the Union Brigade and the Household Brigade. 2,500 sabres approximately, attacking down the north-south road, but pushing these infantry away, quite unprepared for cavalry. And you'll notice there are chopping... Uh, uh, assaults by a sabre or pointing and thrusting injury and they cause different wounds. The French use the long pointed sword and we tend to slash at people. And Punsonby's Union Brigade, and you'll all know of the Scots Greys charge I'm sure, went too far. They were good cavalry but they were totally inexperienced and they didn't come back. And unfortunately they were attacked by fresh French uh, cuirassiers and lancers and they were decimated. We lost over a third of that brigade in this action. And Punsonby was killed, and we never really had an effective cavalry uh, corps here. The wounds were interesting because we didn't have the lance, but the French did. They had a nine-foot lance, which has a great reach, and that can take people off their horses before you can get near them if it's skillfully used. So the French lancers played havoc. They attacked en fourageur, which means like a swarm of bees. And rather like N Nelson's tactics with ships, you engage one man yourself and destroy him and then go on to another. And here you can see uh, William Punsonby being uh, killed, unfortunately, at Waterloo with his ADC beside him. And his sword was recovered from a junk shop in western France about 30 years later and given back to the family. The other Punsonby, a cousin, came to his rescue with the 12th Light Dragoons, and they didn't do much good, but poor uh, Frederick, who did survive, received seven wounds. One of them was an open sucking wound from a lance chest wound, and there were other head and arm injuries. This is Baron Lassau, who was uh, an ex-aristocrat fighting for Napoleon, dismounted from his horse, giving him some brandy. And he, uh, Punsonby, survived, and he met Lassau many years later at a levee. You see, with cavalry protection on the head, even a brass Victorian from the Crimea cask won't protect you completely. And chopping injuries tend to fall around the shoulders, 
the face, the neck, the arms, and sometimes the torso. Whereas a, a pointing thrusting injury, and apologies for this rather gruesome slide, will eviscerate or damage vital organs or cause fatal bleeding. So the kinds of injuries were different. This is Pelletier, a French lancer, and they actually managed to get his bowel back inside, but he lost some bowel here, so they put two ends of the bowel onto the skin as a very crude form of colostomy. I was lucky enough to get some very interesting data on some Royal Scots Greys from a specialist colleague. 77 wounds in 29 troopers. 48 of the 77 wounds were caused by the lance, but interestingly, only 13 of the 48 were body strikes. That means they were inaccurate, and it means that in the panic and f fear and, and adrenaline drive of assault, you can be inaccurate with your <laughs> dishing out of wounds. The other thing is, out of... Uh, uh, 29 troopers, you can see that there were seven severe bruising from horse falls, and we tend to forget that kind of injury. And of course, Blucher, as I did mention, did fall under his horse at Ligny, but was re rescued by his ADC and, and made it to come and help us at uh, Waterloo. Another poignant little story is um, uh, Major General Howe de Lancy, who was quarter, Assistant Quartermaster General to Wellington. And just as the British cavalry had been decimated, he received a round shot on his left side, which broke a lot of ribs and damaged his internal organs severely. And he eventually, 11 days later, died in a little hovel at Mont-Saint-Jean. And Madeleine, who'd only been married to him for three weeks, eventually found him and nursed him. And the little book called uh, A Week at Waterloo is just uh, wonderful. It's a very poignant story. It's one of the finest accounts of an injured man being cared for. And the, the medical staff don't come off terribly well. All they wanted to do was to bleed poor old Delancey, who was heading for the turf anyway, I'm afraid. Anyway, the infantry attack has failed. Um, the Prussians are now seen in the distance, and they take Bonaparte a little bit by surprise, so he moves a lot of infantry across here very wisely. And so they're very depleted in infantry. There are a lot of tying down at Hougoumont. This lot have failed, and Plancenoir has gobbled up the rest. So what happens is that Marshal Ney orders a mass cavalry assault up here between Hougoumont and La Haissante. This is about um, 750 yards, so it's quite a compressed front for 12,000 of the finest cavalry in Europe, and they were very fine horsemen. And this panorama at Waterloo, you see the size of the assaults, probably about 12 assaults over two hours by two cavalry corps. Very brave men, they came over and to their horror, instead trotting, only trotting up this damp ground over corpses and what have you, they find um, 22 infantry squares bristling with bayonets, firing at the horses with an intense fire rate, and they can't do anything. And over two hours, they bravely attack the squares until the squares are nearly out of ammunition. And the French horsemen are powerless. They can only fire pistols, carbines, or throw lances. And on both sides, there was a steadiness and elan, which, uh, steadiness by the British, elan by the French, which was really un uh, unmentionably good. The, the inside of a square was a, a, a hospital. The assistant surgeon would staunch hemorrhage, bind up his wounds. They were often made up of two or three regiments. And the dead were chucked out, and the ranks closed up. But this went on until 6 o'clock. 
Between squares were batteries of artillery. This is a very famous uh, group. Some of you may have heard of Mercer's battery. There's a monument on the battlefield to him. And he, was, uh, he wrote a diary, sort of rather a vainglorious diary, actually, but uh, very interesting nevertheless. And they had to keep up incessant fire to keep the horses from getting near the squares. And you can see how French armour is not really great protection against artillery. This is a nice little specimen from Guy's Hospital from the Gordon Museum with a, our own breastplate, which is a breastbone here, with uh, a little um, French ball impinged on it. It was a spent injury, and it provoked a reaction of the periosteum, and um, <clears throat> Grandpa lived till he was over 90 with that little knob on his chest, and I can imagine all his grandchildren and great-grandchildren loving to come up and caress it. This is Gunnar Butterworth's injury. It's actually a soldier from the American Civil War. And as he fell in front of a discharging gun, he lost both arms uh, below the el uh, uh, above the elbow, in fact. And it, what's difficult is you can't control hemorrhage if you haven't got any arms. But he made it to, from all the way in the front line to about half a mile back to the farm hospital of Mont-Saint-Jean. And the reason he made it was that when you have an avulsion injury by a large missile that just tears a limb off, the blood vessel is stretched, and when it's stretched and damaged and disrupted, it releases chemical, uh, which are called vasoconstrictors, which narrow the artery down, much more efficiently than if you took a sword to cut somebody's arm off. A clean cut doesn't work that way. But poor old Gunner Butterworth fell in front of one of Mercer's guns and made it to with 100 yards of surgical aid, which was sad. Meanwhile, during the cavalry assaults, the Prussians really have arrived. Von Bülow's Fourth Corps is chasing the French out of the village of Plancenoir. The young guard gets sent in by the French and they chase them out again. This is a vicious street street fighting. The Prussians loathe the French for, for many different reasons. And there is no quarter. One French general had to stop his men destroying um, Prussian prisoners by cutting their throats. It was a very nasty piece of action. So now, what are they going to do? The cavalry assaults have failed. Hougoumont's going on. This has failed. They've drawn troops off here. Eventually, uh, Bonaparte, after going back to the farm of Rossomme, where he was exhausted, I think, he came back and he said, you've got to take La Haissante. If you can soften up this uh, centre here by bringing up artillery and cavalry, we can make mincemeat of the centre of the British line. So that's what happened. La Haissante eventually fell. It ran out of ammunition. Three battalions were sent down to relieve it. They were cut to pieces by cuirassiers, and the farm fell, and the French unfortunately ki killed all the wounded inside in the heat of battle. This is the attempt to relieve the farm from the north, from the line, by a King's German Legion. They were very fine soldiers, but they were decimated by cuirassiers, having been ordered down in the wrong formation. But to my mind, the greatest military hero of Waterloo is this man. This is Christian von Omtida, who is brigade commander. He was a colonel in the King's German Legion, and he ordered the 5th Regiment down to take the farm, and they were, they were decimated behind him. He sent his two nephews, aged 15 and 16, to safety, and then he rode on, galloped on on his own, knowing that the regiment was destroyed. He jumped this little hedge in the kitchen garden to the north of La Haissante and was executed by the French. A great sacrifice by a great man. About this time also, when the La Haissante had fallen, a shot from La Haissante took off the military secretary's arm, Fitzroy Somerset, who became Lord Raglan of Crimean frame. 
And, of course, he made rather a mess of the Crimean campaign, and the poor fellow had a lot of challenges there anyway. But you can see he's got an empty sleeve here, and the spectre of Wellington is admonishing him during the Crimea for his poor performance. So poor old Somerset loses an arm, and that's taken off by John Gunning, who's a St. George's surgeon. Finally, things are going very badly for the emperor, and the only thing he can do at about half past seven is finally to send up the middle guard, the old guard and young guard. There are elements of the old guard with the middle guard, but they march up on this compressed front once more to really hit Wellington's centre-right. These are 3,000 men. They go up in square on echelon with their surgeon with them. Their ambulances are half a mile behind them, so a lot of them will die without succor, unfortunately. And they go up onto the Allied ridge, um, and the third and fourth grenadiers of the middle guard, these fine, wonderful-looking old soldiers, uh, they're called the Grumblers, Le Grognard, go in and hit Wellington's centre, while the Haysant is pouring fire on the same area. And the line, two squares, actually break and, and retrograde, and they come back again. But... Um, Luckily, um, a Dutch um, brigade and artillery battery are sent in by Wellington and the, the, the guards are sent back. Meanwhile, the chasseurs meet the um, <coughs> uh, Maitland's foot guards. This is the Dutch-Belgian uh, brigade of artillery coming up and you can see La Haysant here and the Imperial Guard. And this is uh, acknowledging that, uh, which a lot of British historians haven't done, we got a lot of help from our allies. This is Maitland's uh, foot guards, courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, hiding in the, in the corn, uh, to meet the chasseurs. And they send them down the slope, but there's another strong square of chasseurs of the guard. And finally, uh, Sir John Colborne, commanding the light division, these great veterans, uh, attack them sideways and push them down the hill, and the battle's over. At this time, just while the Belgians are coming forward to help, uh, the Prince of Orange is struck in the left shoulder. The ball passes laterally, it damages a bit of his scapula. We know the wound is healed by October. He goes back to Waterloo to be dressed. And if you will go, and I do exhort you to go to Waterloo now because the investment is, is very big indeed and it's a stunning heritage trail to, to look at. But this lion mound is 226. Not advised for those of you with ischemic heart disease or arthritic problems, but you get a marvellous view from the battlefield and the epicentre of this, this is all supported by a big stone column, is where the Prince of Orange got his injury. So the Duke rises up on his horse and tells men to advance forward. And the, the, the guard really have, have been defeated. The French army betrayed by rumours of Grouchy returning, which he failed to do. The Duke rides down and then a ball passes over the neck of Copenhagen and strikes Uxbridge in the right knee. It's a compound injury. The knee joint is badly damaged and he goes away to have his operation, one of the last shots of the battle. The Imperial Guard, the Middle and Old Guard, retire in some sort of order and get away, allowing the Emperor to jump out of his carriage, which is captured by Prussians and British cavalry, and ride off to um, Paris to try and think up another ruse. Meanwhile, after a chance meeting between Blucher and Wellington on the battlefield, Neither spoke each other's language, so Blucher said, Calafaire, and Wellington said, um, mein lieber Kamerad, and that was it. They shook hands, and Wellington comes back to start his dispatch, which comes back to Britain on the 21st of June, and in fact, we're going to receive uh, a mock-up of the dispatch on the 22nd in St. James's Square. 
In the bed behind him, you can see uh, Colonel the Honourable Alexander Gordon dying after his legs been amputated. Sadly, he bleeds from surgical failure, uh, and I think this is a pretty fair um, assumption, and I'll tell you why in a second. The two eagles, there weren't three, um, one of them was recaptured, were presented to the Prince Regent at, in St. James's Square at Mrs. Boehm's great social party, and the nation went berserk, and Mrs. Boehm was broken, very upset that Waterloo victory had ruined her party. Back on the battlefield, things weren't very elegant, and this mass of, of injured horses, you imagine 6,000 wounded horses and almost 2,000 dead horses. You imagine 55,000 men on that two and a half square miles. He, uh, sorry, here is a medical officer, and the logistical challenge is impossible. It took four days to get the Allied wounded away. A lot of the French secreted themselves out of view because they didn't want to be taken to go to the British pontoons as prisoners again. But graves had to be dug. Men were buried locally except the very famous and bodies burnt and so forth. The problem with Waterloo is if you look at the Somme, even the Somme, uh, casualties per day per mile of front is, is, is nothing compared to Waterloo. Of course, the total number of casualties is nothing compared to uh, the total battle of the Somme or Al Alamein, but the density is, is huge, and that posed a big logistical problem. We didn't have stretcher bearers as the French did. We didn't have ambulances, and this is the problem. The musicians of the regiments carried the wounded. The total number wounded in the whole campaign, all four battles, was nearly 63,000. <clears throat> and that's a huge challenge for the medical staffs of all types. Battle of Waterloo, as I say, killed, wounded, and missing 55,000. Overall, the casualties were about 23%. So it's a one in four chance of being hurt, taken prisoner, or dying on the battlefield. But our casualties were slightly more because a lot of Wellington's experienced regiments took particularly harsh punishment. And notice that the officers have very similar uh, casualty rates to the whole lot. French casualties, even with Houssay's figures, we don't know because of desertions and non-attendance of post-battle musters, but about 25,000. Horses, well, we've gone into the casualty numbers and it must have been very unpleasant on the battlefield afterwards with these poor animals not being cared for by the battalion uh, farrier or veterinary surgeons. And, of course, this is one of Charles Bell's famous Corona oil painting showing tetanus, or pistotonic tetanus, from which two people survived these horrendous uh, muscular spasms from the neurotoxin. Treatment then was to cut off the offended wound, the French amputated, we didn't, um, sedate the patient, knock out a couple of teeth so that you could pass the tube into the stomach for feeding, because every time you presented a patient with water or food, he would go into well, what we know as lockjaw, tetanic spasm of the face. There's not much you can do on the battlefield. You can bind up injuries, give water. You want to get back to a regimental aid post, but there weren't any. They had to get back to that farm, and a lot of men died from lack of transport back. There were a couple of field amputations, one French and one British, uh, but as you can see, the conditions for a, a, an amputation on the battlefield were hardly ideal. And the French had this wonderful system of close support with vehicles. They had 340 men broken into three units of 110 men each, with 16 vehicles in each 110-man unit, and these were flying ambulances. They went in to operate close 
to action. They took the wounded out and brought supplies back or likely injured dress men back to fight again. They had dedicated stretcher bearers, um, properly trained military surgeons and sprung ambulances. But, of course, by this time in the war, it was an expensive luxury, this, and it, had not, it was nowhere near its former glory. Here's a French field ambulance in action. It just shows you the arrangement and the temporary setup on the battlefield. But to have properly staffed people who are dedicated to looking after them was so important. And when we gaze at Larry's uniform and his instruments and dressing case used during the Russian campaign, we just wonder why we didn't copy this. And people email me often to say, why not? Well, the answer is quite simple. Victorious governments don't go into spending a lot of new money on new developments. They won, what's the point, and we've got no money anyway, and the enthusiasm level is very low. And that's probably the reason. Even though a surgeon called Van Milligan in 1819 suggested everything the French had done, we wouldn't listen. And, and of course, Guthrie, who was, had the chair of surgery and, and anatomy in this college, uh, gave gratis lectures for, for 13 years, furious that the British Army wouldn't set up a chair in a school of military hygiene and, and medicine. It was a huge failure. Anyway, if you're on the battlefield in a square, this is a Nassau regiment, you had a long way to go. That's the hospital that's being developed now. This is the British line here. But it just shows you distances that uh, wounded men, unaided, would have to go. When I went in the late 60s, that's my first view of the hospital of Mont-Saint-Jean. This bit's going to be the museum. This is a brewery, a very fine Waterloo vintage beer. This is a wedding event centre. There's a shop over here, and the man is spending millions on the place, and it's absolutely delightful that we've uh, managed to persuade him to do it. And this is what an operating theatre would have looked like in Mont-Saint-Jean at that time. There are plenty of large barns, and there were about six to 7,000 casualties there. The camp followers were there, and there was a water source within the farmyards. But after Waterloo, they, the Brussels sent down about 40 wagons, not notice the good French ambulances, of course, and gradually the battlefield was cleared. In Brussels, there were five main hospitals which looked after the casualties. This is the walled city of Brussels. And uh, we were much helped by the, the, the Belgian civilian and medical, uh, military medical staff. Dr. Soitin here was about 22, and he did 18 above-knee amputations on, on the day of Waterloo. And here we can see civilian staff treating casualties in farmhouses nearby. I looked at about 800 um, wounded men who survived and presented to a surgeon, and 62% of them were caused by small arms fire, and then uh, a few by wep uh, edge weapons, and then you have about 17% survivors uh, after cannon shot. And these, again, some more of Bell's pictures, a compound fracture of the tibia and fibula with swelling. It obviously couldn't need an above-knee amputation. Obviously, the military splints have run out because this is a bundle of straw and adhesive tape keeping it quiet. Uh, but uh, Guthrie actually introduced a very much better long-leg splint in Spain. And here we have one of Bell's pictures of an 18th Hussar called Ellard, who's had a compound shoulder injury treated in Brussels and back in Britain, and he survived. But uh, Bell has so poignantly illustrated the pain on the patient's face. Well, the problems are obvious to you. Bleeding with anemia if you survive. There's no blood transfusion, of course. 
sepsis, that didn't come in for 40 years, antiseptic techniques, pain was reasonably well treated, except there was always too little laudanum and op opium with the battalions. Morphine sulfate was actually isolated in 1801 in Germany, interestingly. Dehydration, starvation were big problems for the soldiers. They were improperly fed on a low diet after their wounding and recovery. Wound care with cleaning out the wounds, management of fractures were poorly done and really um, I don't think they really started to get very good till after 1915 when we really had to learn how to debreed filthy contaminated wounds from Flanders battlefields. So 500 Allied amputations on the day, roughly 2,000 over the whole campaign. This is a college uh, capital set with uh, scalpels, trefines, bone nibblers, uh, operative tourniquets. There were field tourniquets as well, but these are complicated petit screw tourniquets for major surgery and their amputation equipment up here. This is a dedicated amputation set belonging to Surgeon Haddy James of the First Lifeguards. It was his first military action, and I found this set in Brisbane, bought by a friend of mine for $29 in a car boot sale, and it belonged to Haddy James. And I'm reading a bit at St. Paul's from Haddy James's diary, which is very moving, because this young man had never been in battle before, and it's his account and feelings about the wounded when they come in. So that's the sort of equipment you'll notice they're in either mahogany or oak chest bound with brass to give them added strength. Of course, the amputation technique had changed from 1760 to 1780. We've gone from the guillotine circular amputation to the flap amputation, where you push the knife through the tissues and ease it out diagonally so that you get flaps of tissue to cover the bone end, which gives much better healing. The French saw is usually a bow saw. This is a British tenon saw, a petit screw tourniquet, and smaller limb um, saws here. Gordon, we talked about him, he died. Well, in Mont-Saint-Jean, um, Dr. Hume, Wellington's personal physician, took his leg off with a guillotine amputation. You can see such an operation here. He picked up the arteries and tied them, not the veins. Um, and he leaves him because he's got to go and do another operation on Lord Uxbridge. And he gets a second opinion and he uses a flap amputation on Uxbridge. And here you can see a wonderful apocryphal painting of Wellington comforting um, his brother-in-law, who in fact has just run off with Wellington's sister-in-law, so this visit never happened. Uh, but it makes a good picture. They got on professionally quite well, but you can see the Malta cross bandage, the standard dressing for a stump and the staff surgeon proudly showing the Duke um, and the surgical work. So Uxbridge survived, albeit with causalgia. There are three artificial legs. One of them is in Place Neweth in, in Menai, Mon in Anglesey. The other on the in Waterloo headquarters of uh, Musée Wellington and the other in the, the Household Cavalry Brigade in Whitehall. There is the flap amputation and you've seen the guillotine amputation but this gives flaps to cover the bone end better. And actually what had happened was that when they uncovered Gordon's dressing he was very ill, he'd bled out a lot on the field and I think a ligature had come off because he says I applied another ligature. Whether he'd missed a vessel or it had come off, we don't know. But he died, unfortunately. This is um, uh, an Imperial Guard amputation set. And what is fascinating, it was, it was lost on the battlefield, abandoned, given to a French 
GP eventually, who presented it to a fantastic museum. I'd really recommend you go there, La Cine. It's called the Hôpital de Notre Dame à la Rose, and it's medieval medicine mainly, but it's got some incredible artifacts. And the, um, uh, the, um, the knives are big and different because it shows the surgeons operated together. Now, I won't go through all the procedures. Obviously, the technique of therapeutic venesection is abhorrent and totally inappropriate, used mainly for chest and head wounds. But drainage of pus, dilating wounds, catheterization and fracture management we've alluded to. The energy of these musket balls was very low compared to modern weaponry here. And so if you were standing close to a musket ball, you got a devastating injury. But within 300, yard, uh, 300 yards or so, you were quite safe. So there was a different kind of energy dispersal. You felt with the wound with your finger. If you could feel it, you can probably extract it. You might need deep, long instruments to do so. These are all missiles removed by Professor John Thompson or Sir Charles Bell after the battle. And this is the cloth that's carried in. You can see a little disc of cloth here and here, which carries the infection into the wound. Trefining was done for compound and depressed fractures. And you made the incision with a circular saw near to the fracture and, left the blood out, and let the blood out. It had to be made near to the fracture, not on the fracture site. And the most famous or notorious case was at Catrabra with this young lieutenant in the Cambridgeshire Regiment called Lockwood. And he had a very ugly scar after his trepanation in Brussels. So he made a little silver plate with perspiration holes, and on it was written bomb-proof. And he put this across the defect in his skull and kept it in position with a black silk bandana. This field officer had 15 years of recurring chronic osteomyelitis of the skull with epilepsy, headaches, discharges of infected bone, but he lived 15 years after the battle. And as we get near the end, we've got to mention Guthrie, who was three times president, five times vice president of this college, who reluctantly went over to the battle to help and advise, and this was his triumphal disarticulation of the, of the hip of a French prisoner of war. The bone had been, the hip joint had been destroyed. The magnitude of surgery needed, he had two very efficient assistants, and the man lost about 700 cc's of blood and actually made it back to France as a shiny example of good British surgery. You all know, I'm sure, about Waterloo teeth. Young, healthy, fit soldiers, relatively fit, didn't get caries, so their teeth were very valuable to sell to people to mount in hippopotamus ivory or walrus ivory to be given expensive dentures to the class of people who could afford refined carbohydrates. Terrible slide, 374 victims at Waterloo, but note how much more common leg injuries were than arm injuries and how much higher the mortality is of leg compared to arm. And if you do the operation soon when it's needed, you have a much lower mortality than if you leave the injury nearly half the mortality rate. So three-quarters of the men rejoined the army of the wounded the next year. And Napier actually says something very true. There's a long story of treachery, secret politics, jealousy, false rumours. Uh, and will it ever be sorted out? Well, one doesn't know. And I think Wellington's quote is even better. He says, leave the battle alone. You will never make it a satisfactory work. And as we look at him coming back exhausted after meeting Blucher, 
those wise words actually percolate down to today. This is the last survivor and witness of Waterloo. Her name was Elizabeth Watkins, and she helped drip water into the mouths of the wounded. Here she is with her own child later in life and husband. She has a great-great-great-granddaughter who's coming over tomorrow. I've met her, and she was the last witness of Waterloo to die in 1904. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a long story, I'm afraid, but the battle is, takes a bit of telling. And the medical people who looked after the wounded, and the wounded themselves, I think, deserve our um, memories and thanks as we go through these next two days, which are the bicentenary of the campaign of Waterloo. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. was wonderful, mesmerising uh, lecture. Um, uh, we have time for one or two brief questions, if there's anybody. Please. Uh, my great-great-grandfather fought in the 73rd Regiment of Foot, and he was shot through the thighs with a musket ball, so what you were just saying was very interesting to me. And the family story was that he was was he a private soldier? He, was he would have been looked after by Duncan McDiarmid, who was a regimental medical officer to the 2nd 73rd that was absorbed into the Black Watch eventually. It was a Highland regiment. I was the proud possessor of Duncan McDiarmid's Waterloo Medal, which I wish I still had to show you. It took quite high casualty rates, so he would have put his finger in if there was no exit wound to see if he could feel the ball. They tracked all over the place sometimes. Um, and he, he didn't have an amputation, I assume, no. Because he probably didn't have a broken bone or a damaged artery with that story. It was probably a soft tissue injury, but nevertheless severe and could, could get infected. <laughs> well, that's true, isn't it? And we're meeting so many descendants now, which is a real joy. The damaged skull with a metal plate, I met her two days ago lecturing at Wellington College, so I made her stand up so that the boys could see her. <laughs> Please, How effective They didn't get laudanum. There was a small amount of tincture of laudanum and opium given to each battalion. And you can actually get the figures from the Crimean War, and it was far too small, the allocation. So, for instance, Nelson, when he had his arm removed, had three doses of tincture of laudanum, and that was it, because there's no intermediate an analgesic. You know, there's no paracetamol or brufen or nirofen, nothing like that. So the answer is they bore the pain because they expected no different. Wouldn't you agree, Helen? Mm. A final question, please. Um, Bearing in mind there was no antisepsis, what was the improvement in the chances of a casualty to have an amputation in the hospital as opposed to on the field? Well, not many, as I said, were done on the battlefield. I think the sooner they were done in hospital, the better. But amputation success and Larry's overall mortality in Russia was 20% mortality. But that does mean 8 in 10 people walk away, survived. It depends on the fitness of the patient, how long there's been in delay before amputation, um, uh, the skill of the surgeon, and that's about it, really. Oh, and the sight. You know, obviously a, a hip or thigh wound is the most severe, and a finger wound not necessarily the most severe.
Pleasure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, much as we'd like to pepper Mick with questions for the whole afternoon, I'm sure we could. I certainly could. We should probably uh, let him uh, rest before in what is a very, very busy week. Um, I'm very pleased to announce that our next lecture, although the brochure is now yet, will be on the 11th of August, uh, which will be about on the uh, John Thomas Quackett, who's bicentenary of his birth and the semi and the sesquicentenary you got sesquicentenary there you go 150th of the Quackett Microscopical Club and I'm looking at Quackett members to remind me if I've got my numbers right um, that'll be on the 11th of August a lovely lunchtime lecture but I'm delighted that we've climaxed this year's uh, series with this lecture I want to thank our speech to text colleagues uh, thank the whole learning team, and especially Haley, who's disappeared, for organising this. Thank you for turning up on a lovely summer's day, and especially to thank <coughs> Mick for a fascinating lecture. Thanks, Mick. Thank you.